0: Well, it's a great joy to be with you all this morning. It's been a a pleasure to be back uh, with you and spend time with uh, many of you this weekend. Uh, If I haven't met you, I'm Mike McKinley. Uh, I pastor a church called Sterling Park Baptist Church in the Washington, D.C. suburbs. Uh, I am uh, grateful to be here, grateful for the privilege of bringing God's word, grateful for all that God is doing uh, in and through this church. Uh, I'd like to start this morning with a question. And that is, wouldn't it it be great to see God? Wouldn't it be wonderful to be in God's presence? So for centuries of Western thought and for much of uh, the time of Christian theology, this was the highest goal towards which anyone could strive. So if uh, you ever found yourself in school required to read uh, Dante's Divine Comedy, you might know that it all moves towards this final vision of God in all of his beauty, and all of his love. So after Dante travels through the imagined horrors of the inferno and then the purgatory, Dante, finally, the very end of this sort of three-part work, beholds God, and he calls him the love that moves the sun and the other stars. So the great... English poet T.S. Eliot, he calls Dante's words there the highest point that poetry has ever reached or ever could reach. And I'm definitely not smart enough to argue with him. I think Dante was on to something. There's there's a deep longing in the human heart to be in the presence of God, even if we don't know it. I think it makes sense if you think about it. If you're familiar with the storyline of the Bible, Adam and Eve, uh, the first humans, were created in order to to live in the immediate presence of their creator. So you remember God was with them. He walked in the garden with them. So David, King David, prays in the Psalms, in Psalm 17, verse 15. He says, as for me, speaking to the Lord, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I will be satisfied with your likeness. Centuries later, the Lord Jesus promised that great reward for some people. Matthew 5.8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Wouldn't it be great to see God, to be in his presence? There is another side to the story. When Adam and Eve, those first humans, rebelled against God, one of the consequences of their sin was that they were removed from his presence. They were cast outside the garden and and angels were were placed at the gates with a a flaming sword that turned in every direction, saying, "You're, you're not allowed to be here anymore. They were morally and spiritually unworthy. They were no longer qualified to be in the presence of a holy God. It was also for their own safety. It's simply not safe for sinful people to be around the holiness of God. As the storyline of the Bible continues on, there are times when we see human beings have some kind of experience of God's presence. And it's interesting how they react. So in the days of Moses, God met with his people at Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapter 19, the Lord descends on the mountain in fire, and he warns the people, don't come near Or else you're going to die. The mountain is consumed with smoke. And there's thunder and the blasts of trumpets. And so the people of Israel, they beg Moses that you go talk to him on our behalf. They were terrified by the presence of God. Or you might remember in Isaiah chapter 6 where the prophet has a vision of the Lord in the temple. Surrounded by angels praising his holiness. And, And Isaiah, it's funny, he doesn't have the same response that Dante imagined. Isaiah 6, verse 5, I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Ezekiel chapter 1 records a vision that the prophet has of God's glory. And he summarizes there in Ezekiel 128, he says, Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. Right, Just the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord was enough to knock the prophet down. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus performs a miracle where he loads his disciples' nets with fish. Right, And you think they'd be grateful. You think they'd be excited. Right? Let's go into business. But Luke 5.8 tells us, that Simon Peter responded in this way. When Simon Peter saw it, this miracle that Jesus had performed, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Each one of those cases, an awareness of being in the presence of a holy God is, is enough so that people can't bear it. Sinful people can't stand it. And so you have this tension in the Bible between the idea that the most wonderful thing you could possibly ever imagine doing would be to see God's face and to behold his presence. And then on the other hand, this idea that being in God's presence is absolutely unbearable for sinful people. Well, in our passage for this morning from the book of Jude, we're going to see how that tension in the Bible gets resolved. And at the risk of spoiling the ending, we're going to see that it's resolved in God himself. Now, if you're familiar, this little letter of Jude, it's just one chapter, probably on just one page of your Bible. It was written to a church that had been infiltrated by false teachers. So Jude calls them certain people who had crept into the church unnoticed. And it seems that they were teaching that God's grace... And God's forgiveness meant that you were free to live any way you wanted to live. So they were promoting all kinds of license and and immorality in the church. And so at the beginning of this little letter, Jude encourages the church. He tells them to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. He wants them to labor, to work diligently, to make sure that they held tight to the good news about Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Jude moves on to warn his readers about the judgment of God against sin and rebellion. right? And the the passage immediately preceding ours for this morning, he he urges the church to keep themselves in the love of God. And so let's turn now to Jude 24 and 25, the conclusion of Jude's little letter, and see what the Lord would say to us. Jude 24. Now, as you look at those verses, you can see that Jude is telling us something about God. Right there in verse 25, he's talking about the only God, our Savior. It seems that Jude's particularly speaking here about God the Father, since he then immediately mentions the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ our Lord, in the very next phrase. And and he tells us something very important about God there at the beginning of the passage. And that is, he tells us that God is able. He's giving praise here, and he says, To him who is able. So, what is God able to do? It seems that there's something that Jude's readers must have been nervous about. Maybe they were worried that there was something that God couldn't or wouldn't do for them. And so, Jude wants to tell them, God is able. So what is he able to do? I think in this passage we see two things, and that's going to be my outline. The two things we see in this passage that God is able to do. The first, Jude says, is he's able to keep you from stumbling. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. You can see, again, if you understand the context of the book of Jude, why this is so important. Jude is worried about these false teachers that have crept into the church and they're potentially spiritually lethal threats to the well-being of the congregation. So in Jude 12, if you have Jude open in front of you, he calls them hidden reefs at their love feasts. Right? A hidden reef, I don't know much about sailing, but that's not a good thing. Right? A hidden reef, you're going to run your ship into it and sink. He says there in verse 4 that these teachers are designated for condemnation, and they threaten to, to drag others down with them. He compares them to to the memory of famous spiritual disasters. So in verse 11 of Jude, he compares them to Cain and Balaam and Korah. In verse 7, he compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah. These were all people who experienced the judgment and the destruction of God for their sin and rebellion. And so Jude is acutely aware of the danger that's out there. The Christian life, if you're familiar with the scriptures, it's often conceived of in the Bible as a journey with a, a fixed destination. So in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus speaks in terms of paths, Right? he says everybody's on a path. There's a broad, easy path, and it ends in destruction. Or Jesus says there's a hard, narrow path that leads to life, right? Your, your life is a path with a destination, In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul tells the church in verse 24 to so run that you may obtain the prize. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 to 8, he reflects on the ending of his own life. He says, I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. He says, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You see, as Christians, we are all on a journey that ends either at our death or when Jesus returns, whichever comes first. And the goal here is not to finish as quickly as you can. Uh, The goal of this race is to get to the finish line. The goal is for us to so live our lives that we complete our course, that we make it across that line faithfully, that we receive the reward that our gracious God has promised to us. We want to finish our Christian walk faithfully, walking with the Lord, following Jesus. The problem is not everyone ultimately makes it. So Paul talks about those who shipwreck their faith. In 1 John, the apostle talks about those who went out from us and thereby revealed that they never were actually followers of Christ. Hebrews 10 talks about those who shrink back and are destroyed. I mean, let's face it, every church sees people drop out over time. So I don't even have to really know much to be pretty sure that you've seen people in your midst before who seemed energetic and they seemed committed. They seemed like they were all in on following Christ, but then one day, for some reason, they just walked away. You've seen them perhaps give their lives over to sin or unbelief, or certain false doctrines, or simply to the cares of the world, right? And this is a very real danger. Much of the book of Hebrews was written to help guard against such defections. Jude wrote this letter to protect the church from false teachers who would who would cause this kind of spiritual train wreck. Jude's been writing to prevent his readers, and I think that includes us from getting tripped up like that. Jude wants us to avoid shipwrecking our faith. He doesn't want us ending up under the judgment of God like like Cain and Korah and Balaam and Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he tells his readers, contend for the faith because that's the only place where salvation can be found. He he tells his readers, keep yourselves in the love of God because perseverance in the faith requires effort. But now he gives us a different angle on this truth here in verse 24. Verse 24. He says God is able to keep you from stumbling as you walk along your path. And here Jude uses a different word. He uses a different Greek word. In verse 21, if you look up there, uh, he tells his readers to keep themselves in the love of God. And he uses a word there for, for keep that has the sense of watching. It means to give careful attention to something. So here Jude wants us to be vigilant, to pay careful attention. But here in verse 24, when he tells us that God is able to keep us from stumbling, he uses a different word for keep. It's a word that has a sense of protecting someone or or, or guarding something that's precious. And if you understand what's going on here, what Jude says will be like a a blast of fresh air to you. Because if you know yourself very well at all, then you'll know that if it depends on you, if it only depends on you and your effort and your self-control and your will and your ability to hang on to God and keep yourself in the faith, if that's all you have, you're not going to make it. Your ultimate confidence is not in your own ability to persevere in the faith, but in the fact that your heavenly Father is able to keep you from stumbling. Jude's telling us here that he is the one who's able to protect you and keep you. Right? This is why at the end of our service, we, we don't sing, I will hold me fast. Right? No, we rejoice in the truth that he will hold me fast. Right? This is what Jesus is telling his disciples in John 10. When he speaks of his disciples, he says, My Father, who has given them to me, that is my, my disciples, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. You see, Jesus is he's saying the same thing that Jude is saying. We need to know that God does not lack the power. Jesus says he's greater than all. Jude says he is able And he doesn't lack the motivation to keep us in his love. In fact, no one is able to snatch us out of the Father's hand. Jude's reminding them that he can and he will hold his people fast. And that leads us naturally into the second thing that Jude says God is able to do. He says God is able to present us before the presence of his glory. You see that there in verse 24. He's able to present us before the presence of his glory. Now, what is God's glory? In one sense, the word glory is used as a sort of synonym for God's honor or his wonderful reputation. So the Bible often speaks about God doing something for his own glory. But in another sense, God's glory is that brilliant light that surrounds his presence, so there are times when God reveals himself in the Bible, and when he appears, there is this incredible light, and that light, the sort of shining that comes with God's presence is called his glory, right? It's a way of communicating his holiness, his, his beauty, his perfection, right? If, if I were up here and suddenly this bright light started shining out of my sort of the back of my head, you, you'd all understand like, wow, that guy is special, Right? But when the Lord appears, there is this bright, glorious light that that attends his presence. So if you remember in Luke chapter 2, an angel of the Lord appears to the shepherds to tell them of Jesus' birth. And we we read that the glory of the Lord shone around them. In Revelation 21-23, we see that in the heavenly city, there's no need for sun or moon. Because it says that glory of the Lord will serve as the light for God's people. Right, so Jude talks here about being in the presence of God's glory. He's talking about seeing God in the most complete way that we can as creatures. And brothers and sisters, that's it. That, that is the finish line. This is that unfading crown of glory that, that Peter talks about in 1 Peter 5. This is the imperishable victory wreath that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 9 that, that faithful runners receive. Right this is the vision of God that Jesus promises to the pure in heart. Right it's all wrapped up in this idea that Jude gives us here about being presented in the presence of his glory. Think about it. In God's presence there's no sickness. There's no sorrow. There's no sin. In God's presence everything is made right and holy. In God's presence, every longing that can't be satisfied here on earth, every good desire is going to be met and filled with the goodness and beauty of God. To be in the presence of God's glory is to have all of life's temptations and trials and tears wiped away. So think for a second about the most wonderful, the most awe-inspiring, the most breathtaking place you've ever been in your life. Maybe it's Niagara Falls or the Grand Canyon or some other other natural wonder. Uh, Think about the most wonderful piece of art you've ever beheld. Something that just overwhelmed you with its beauty. Think about the most powerful music you've ever heard. The most exciting sporting event you've ever seen, the most captivating piece of theater you've ever attended. So, for me, uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, I was with some friends in the Dominican Republic, and we were on Playa Grande, big beach, turns out, right? And, And we're sitting there, and it's this beautiful, it's in the Caribbean, so the water's just this crystal blue. It looks like someone melted a gem. Right, And so we're swimming in the water and suddenly the waves just started kicking up in a way that was unusual because we noticed all the Dominicans were gone. Right, We looked up and we're like, what happened? And the waves were getting bigger. So everybody went home and we didn't have anywhere particularly to go or to be. And so we just sat on the beach and watched this. Watched, it, there wasn't really a storm. It was beautiful. It was clear, but the waves just started getting enormous. And so as the sun set, we were watching, and these these waves were 10, 12 feet high, but the the water was so clear that it looked like a a wall of diamond just kind of coming at us. And as the, the light, kind of as the sun went down, suddenly, just as the waves would start to break for a second across the top of the wave, the whole thing would just sort of sparkle with this bright electric blue for just a second, and then the wave would crash, and then the next giant wall of of sort of bright crystal would come and, a, and the wave would would sparkle blue. And it just kept happening over and over again. And we just looked at each other like, is this for real? Like, is this actually a thing? Right? And then nobody said anything. It was such a, a like a perfectly sort of holy moment. We all just eventually it got dark and we walked back to the car and and we were just captivated. Maybe you've seen something like that in your life. Maybe you've seen something that just took you to a place beyond yourself and made you realize just how small you are and just how real something much greater and awesome than you really is. Okay, so whatever it is for you, get it in your mind for a second. And now just think, just realize that whatever that thing is for you, it is just a tiny derivative splinter of the beauty and the power and the glory of the one who created it. Right, standing in the presence of God's glory. It will be far more wonderful than any poet could ever describe. It, it will be far more moving than the most skillful musician could ever point us to. Than the best artist could ever capture. And no wonder Jude says there that we will be standing in the presence of God's glory. He says with great joy. Not just joy, great joy. To be in the presence of God's glory is to be overwhelmed with his goodness and beauty. Doesn't your soul long for that? But there's a problem. How can we stand in the presence of his glory with great joy? As we thought about earlier, when sinful people are in the presence of anything near the glory of God, they come completely unglued. Right, the experience of the Israelites at Sinai, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Peter, they did not have great joy in the presence of God. It was more like personal disintegration. So how is it that Jude tells us that God is able to present us in the presence of his glory with great joy? How can that possibly be? Well, he tells us there in verse 24, God is able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. That is to say, God is able to keep us from stumbling and so cleanse us that we can stand before him on that last day without any fault at all. We can only imagine what that would be like, to be completely blameless, to be morally pure, to be utterly righteous. Can you imagine? Right? I think this is the one thing we desire most in the entire world. Right? Our society has constructed so many different ways to deal with our guilt. Right? We have just tried to redefine right and wrong. Right? We have tried to set ourselves adrift from any kind of moral standard because if there's no standard, then I can't fail to meet it. And if I don't fail to meet it, I don't have to feel guilty. But it turns out it doesn't work. There is something of the image of God in all people. There is a conscience testifying against us. And so even as people are out there living their own truth, they're being crushed by guilt and shame, a sense of never measuring up, of never being enough. And so it's common to walk around with this sense of guilt for the things that we've done, for the things we haven't done, for the ways that we've failed people, for the ways we haven't even met our own standards, if we're being honest. Right, if you've had the opportunity to be a parent, right, just, just think about that for a second. Right, the only people I know who feel good about how they're doing as parents are, are 20-something people who don't have kids yet. Right? They've got the advice. They know what they're doing. They know the catechisms they're gonna use, when they're gonna start Baby Latin. Right? They've got it all figured out. But you see, they have a couple kids, right, and you see one day the look in their eye, and you realize they've joined the club. right. <laughs> To be a parent is to fail your kid on some level, right? Even the best parents have plenty to feel guilty about. To be a husband is to fail your wife. To be a pastor is to fail your church. To be a child is to fail your parents, right? We could just keep on going, heaping up uh, things and relationships that you could feel condemned and guilty for. But friends, the good news for you this morning, if you're in Christ, if you're feeling particularly condemned and guilty, the good news is, Jude tells us here, that is not what it will be like to be in the presence of God's glory. You will be there with no weight of sin, no shame at your inadequacies and failures and weakness, no fear that you're going to be exposed for who you really are. Why? Because God is able to present you Blameless before the presence of his glory. On that day, you will be before the Almighty One, the one that made Isaiah and Ezekiel and Peter freak out. And you will have great joy. Not because he's lowered his standards and now it's safe for sinful people to come near him. Not because he's redefined right and wrong so that your failures are no longer failures and your sins are no longer sins, but because you will finally be made Holy that word blameless, has the sense of being acceptable. So in the temple worship of the Old Testament, only a spotless animal could be offered to the Lord. It had to be without blemish. And so Jude's saying, that's what we're going to be. Using the language of Hebrews 12, we will be the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This is the great benefit of Christ's work for us. God is able to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy because of what Jesus has done for us. Again, God doesn't just wave a magic wand and make our sins go away, but he has paid the price to have them removed. God sent his son to take on human flesh. Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to his heavenly father. He was blameless. And in love, he gave up his life on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. He rose from the dead in power, in victory over sin and death. And so now we get to participate in what Martin Luther called a great exchange. The theological term is double imputation. It sounds fancy, but it's it's a simple and beautiful truth. Something gets imputed or, or credited to Jesus. And something gets Imputed or credited to us, to his people. All of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our blame and shame is imputed. It's, it's credited, it's counted to Jesus. and He paid the penalty for it. He suffered under the judgment of God against all of those sins. Our sin was imputed to him. And in return, we get the righteousness of Christ imputed, credited, counted to us. Luther didn't make up the idea. It's in the Bible. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, God the Father made Jesus, the, the blameless one, to be sin for us. Our sin was imputed, credited, counted to him, so that in him the righteousness of God would be counted to us. Brothers and sisters, Jesus became sin on the cross for us, and now in him we are the righteousness of God. In Jude's words, we are presented blameless before him on the last day, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's why Jude says there in verse 25 that's through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so how do we make it happen? Well, we don't. It, It comes to us as a gift. The righteousness of God, this blamelessness that God is able to give to us uh, by virtue of his son's death and resurrection, it doesn't come to us uh, via a religious checklist. Christianity doesn't come to you with a list of do's and don'ts that give you the key to being blameless, the key to being right with God. Right? That's just man's religion, and it turns out God hates it. And so don't waste your time with it. Right, All of your best deeds, all of your most devoted acts of religious piety, they have no power to make you blameless on that day. You're just washing your hands with mud. It's never going to get clean. Now, The good news, brothers and sisters, is that this requires of you exactly what you're able to give, and that is nothing. Jesus wants to give you his righteousness as a free gift. And so if you'll repent of your sins and put your trust in him, you will be forgiven and cleansed and made blameless in the eyes of God. I can't imagine what that would be like. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, now is the time to turn from your sin and trust in him. When you stand before the holy God who made Peter and Isaiah come unglued, you will not be able to plead any act of religious devotion, any any personal goodness, no good intentions. There is nothing you can do to fix your sin problem. And for those of us who are followers of Christ those who have received this righteousness, this blamelessness as a free gift, can you see how marvelous your salvation is? That God is able, through Christ, to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. You will be there, not weighed down from sin and guilt and shame, not with regret and sorrow, not with fear, But Jude says, with great joy. And that means we can actually live now, free from guilt and condemnation. Your judge doesn't condemn you. He's forgiven you. Jesus bled and died so that your failures and your sins could be credited to him. And so that his righteousness could be counted to you. Your sin doesn't stand against you now, and it's not going to stand against you on that last day when you're in the presence of his glory. And so we as Christians can practice living out that heavenly life now in our day-to-day walk. We can, we can live it out by living like those who have been made blameless in the sight of God. We can inject a heavenly reality into our Monday mornings by embracing this blood-bought freedom from guilt and condemnation. Again, not because I'm so amazing that I don't have anything to feel bad about, but because Jesus is so amazing that he's taken my shame. And that leads us to Jude's application of this little theology lesson. He's told us what God is able to do. And so what should we do? in light of God's ability to keep us from stumbling and his ability to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Well, in a sense, nothing. There's no imperative here. There's no command. there's, There's nothing that you need to go do. Instead, what we have is Jude's example. And he expresses praise to God. He ends this little letter with a word of doxology, right an expression of praise. And brothers and sisters, this is the final application of every theology lesson. Praise to the only God for who he is and what he's done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the words that Jude uses there. He says, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He says, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Right? Glory to God. Glory in that first sense that we talked about earlier. Honor, praise, he says majesty, God's greatness over everything. Dominion, the the arena in which God reigns and, and in which his reign is expressed, it's limitless. Authority, God rules over all. To him be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. To be clear, Jude's not suggesting we give those things to God. He already has them. He's not in any way dependent on me to make him glorious. I don't contribute to his majesty, his dominion, or his authority as if he lacked something. No, Jude is inviting us as followers of Christ to bring our thoughts and hearts and affections in line with the amazing reality of God's being. Jude is inviting us to respond to the truth of God's character and his salvation. That's why at my, my home church that I serve, we often end our Sunday mornings with these words. I think we're going to do that this morning. Right? It's not because we're looking around trying to figure out something that sounds kind of religious and spiritual to say at the end, because otherwise it's just kind of weird. People get up and go watch football. No, no the natural, normal, proper response to God's character and his salvation is for us to praise him. Right? Whatever it is that you're looking at in Scripture— whether it's God's justice, his wrath, his mercy, his patience. The end result, if you've understood it, should be praise in your heart. If not, you haven't understood it, or there's something wrong with your heart. When we hear something about God, you can tell if you've really, if you've really gotten it. Because if you've understood, somewhere in your heart will be some version of, to him be praise, to him be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Right, that's why Jude sort of zooms out there in verse 25. He says, God deserves all of this praise before all time. Right, God has always been this glorious. This is nothing new. Eternity past was filled with the glory, majesty, dominion, and authority of God. And Jude says, now. Right, this is where we come in. This is why you gather on Sunday mornings. Right, according to Hebrews 12, when we come to worship, we are spiritually joining in with the worship of innumerable angels in festal gathering, the, the very worship service that's taking place in heaven at this moment. And Jude says, forevermore. Right, the business of the universe for the rest of time is praising God. His glory extends into eternity future. His praise will never be extinguished. And here's what I've noticed. As people grow in Christ, as they mature as followers of Jesus, they are more and more consumed by and captivated by the glory of God. Difficult situations in their lives become less about them and more fodder for God's glory. Lord, this is difficult. But you're good. You're worthy of glory. Help me to honor you in this trial if you have appointed it for me. Seasons of great blessing become opportunities to praise God for his kindness. Lord, why are you so good to someone like me? Help me to receive your gifts in a way that honor you and glorify you. So brothers and sisters, as you head out into the world this week, let this doxology focus you. Because you were made for worship. You might not feel like it, but it's true. The only choice we have is between the worship of God and the worship of idols. But we will worship. Whatever it is that you give your, your life to. Whatever it is that gives your life hope and meaning. Whatever you put your trust in. Whatever gets you out of bed in the morning. Whatever thrills your soul most. Whatever it is you can't live without. That thing or things, those things occupy. They own, they have the worship of your heart. Each and every human being is on a quest to find something worthy of worship. I don't even need to know you to know that's true. Your day today will be ruled. Your tomorrow, your eternity will be ruled by the worship of your heart. And so today you're going to go home and maybe have lunch with friends. Maybe spend time with family. Maybe you'll watch a ball game, take a walk, read a book, take a nap. Whatever it is, tomorrow you'll go to do whatever it is you do during the week. And you're either going to do those things in the hope that it's going to be enough to make you happy. That it's going to be enough to sustain you and get you through the day. You're going to invest your worship in those things, in those people. Right? And, and you're going to find that when things go wrong, and when people disappoint you, or when you mess up as you inevitably will, you're going to feel like you've lost everything. Or if things go really well, and you get everything you want, and you're killing it at work, and marriage is great, and you got a big house, and you have a nice car, and you find yourself at the end of the day not actually satisfied. And you're really left thinking, I guess I just need more. Eventually, anger or despair or frustration or depression will kick in, depending on your temperament and personality. Or... You can do all of those very same things with the conviction that God is worthy of your praise and honor. And so everything you do is directed towards him with gratitude and submission and praise. And in doing them, you will find them joyful. And when things go wrong, you'll be okay because God's never gone wrong. Church, this little two-verse doxology is such good news. God is able to keep you from stumbling. He can present you blameless, blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And so now, our lives, our hearts, have someone worthy of worship, worthy of glory, worthy of majesty, worthy of dominion, worthy of authority, before all time and certainly now and into eternity. Let's pray together. Father, our hearts are filled with worship. That you would welcome sinners like us into the presence of your glory. That you would send your Son to satisfy justice on our behalf. Lord Jesus, that you would bleed and die for our sins. We ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would give us each hearts that delight in that truth more than any other. Would you help us to love and to live now with worship and with great joy, free from guilt and condemnation, as we look forward to that future day when we will stand in your presence as a cleansed and redeemed people. Our God, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.